The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. So much of Charles Daniels' garden world revolves around camellias. In this episode, he talks about how to be successful with camellias and their surprising history. He shares why camellias are a key plant for year-round blooms. We also talk about how to overcome gardening challenges. This lawyer, banker, and successful business owner retired, but not for long. He reveals his journey and how that led to the ongoing development and caring for some of the most unique gardens in the Savannah, Georgia area. Charles is a University of Georgia certified plant professional and a Georgia certified landscape professional. This is episode 83, Where Do Camellias Grow Best, with Charles Daniel, and is a remix of episode 29 on the Garden Question Podcast. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Charles, why are camellias such a great plant to use in the garden? Camellias are so versatile. You literally can have different varieties of camellias in your garden blooming from September all the way through until May. We are approaching some 25, 2600 different varieties. How long have camellias been around? The first recorded evidence of camellias is 2737 BC. That was in China. They later were reported to be in Japan in 600 AD. Those were brought to Japan by Buddhist monks. How do we end up getting so many camellias in the United States? We got some from Japan and China, but mostly our camellias have come from European countries. And of course, the European countries had foreign trade with the Far East for decades upon decades. Camellia seeds were brought from the Far East to France and other European countries. They were developed there, and we actually had camellia seeds brought to Georgia. In 1740, they were put in the trustee's garden here in Savannah. They frankly did not do well. We evidently did not bring the right type of seeds here. We also have a lot of written evidence of camellias being on Skidaway Island around the 1800s. Is Georgia one of the main landing points for camellias in the United States? Georgia and in the southeast. We have some phenomenal camellia growers that I have actually purchased from in Louisiana, in Mississippi, in Alabama. We have several good growers here in Georgia. There is a wonderful grower in North Carolina right outside of Chapel Hill. 
Cam Forrest. The gentleman who started Cam Forrest was in international finance and traveled to Japan and China quite often with his business dealings and started bringing seeds back on his trips. They started the nursery back 45 or 50 years ago. We've got excellent growers all over the Southeast that have deep, deep roots in growing different varieties of camellias. The other thing, too, that I would point out about the history of camellias, Craig, is we actually got into a war over camellias. How did that happen? If you recall the Boston Tea Party, that's exactly what happened. We're (laughs) trying to get tea into the U.S. The taxation over it helped create our war. There's a story about Judge Solomon bringing camellias in. Could you tell us that story? Sure. Judge Solomon was actually a city commissioner here in Savannah. He went to France in the 40s, brought back 200 varieties. What's pretty interesting about the trip is that he was caring for the camellias during the trip and was informed that prior to reaching our territorial limits on the Atlantic Ocean coming into the United States, that he would have to take all of the French dirt off of the roots of the camellias because we were not permitted to bring French soil into the U.S. at that point in time. He got crew members, and they actually washed all of the roots off and put them in peat moss, and he brought them on to Savannah from New York. He actually came in on the Queen Mary. He brought the plants to Savannah and planted them, and over a 100 of the varieties actually survived the trip and the ordeal that they had to go through in order to be planted here in Savannah. Those plants still exist or are they gone? Those plants still exist and there is a doctor here who has bought Judge Solomon's property and he has restored it and done a remarkable job of taking care of the camellias themselves. Judge Solomon is a familiar name. There's an Isaiah that's named after him. He was a real horticulturist. His piece of property is absolutely gorgeous. It has a lot of native azaleas in addition to the different varieties of camellias. I would tell you this, Craig, down here we have several large properties with people who are collectors of camellias. There's one property down here that I'm familiar with that has well over 300 varieties of camellias on it. There are just some absolutely fabulous camellias on larger properties. And what's interesting is you really get to see how you can utilize those in your own garden because you can see color for so many months of the year. How many months of the year can you see color with camellias? You can actually see color with camellias from late September all the way through to April, first part of May. That's why I think when you're actually designing your garden and you want color, you have to be careful in looking for varieties of camellias that bloom at different times of the year. Of course, you can get many, many colors in the camellias, in the pinks, and the lavenders. They're variegated in the color of the bloom. They also have a tremendous variety of size of bloom, as well as the shape of the bloom also. It's an evergreen plant, and you can use it year-round. Give us some examples of how to use camellias in the garden. That's the one thing that I really like about the camellias is they are so versatile. 
you're looking for an area that has morning sun and afternoon shade. There are certain varieties of camellias that will take more sun. In fact, there is one that's called royal velvet, which is a gorgeous red camellia. And you can plant it in a western exposure in full sun, and it will thrive and bloom. You just have to be a little bit diligent in looking for the amount of light that a particular variety of camellia will take. Some of them will bloom in full shade exquisitely. That's why you can move them around in your garden depending on your light. Then you can also choose different varieties that will bloom at different times so that you've got color in your garden year-round. Down here, we refer to the camellia being the winter rose in the garden because there are so many of the varieties that do bloom in the wintertime. Camellias are basically broken up into japonicas and sasanquas. Is there any others? There's actually a couple of other varieties that you need to be aware of as well. Japonicas and camellias are the ones that we traditionally use so much in our gardens. The largest amount of camellias in the world are actually sinensis, which are the tea plants. Tea is actually made from camellia leaves. Sinensis plants are not very pretty. They're three to four feet tall and blooms are not showy like the, the sasanquas or the japonicas. They are grown worldwide. The sasanquas are a little bit smaller leaf than the japonicas. It's also a darker leaf, and they typically bloom from late fall to early winter. For instance, one of the best-known varieties of camellias is called a yuletide. The reason for the name is because it blooms during the yuletide season, typically from middle part of November all the way through the yuletide season. Then we have the japonicas, which are the larger camellias. Larger leaf, leaves can be up to four inches in length, and they also can get up to 25 feet tall if you allow them to. After we had Matthew come through with our first hurricane in 105 years, a lady asked me out to assess damage on her property. She had a two-story house on the Isle of Hope, and she said, what about this tree? I looked at it, and I said, I really can't tell what kind of tree it is because the leaves are up so high. Can I go up to your second-story window and look at the leaves to determine what it is? I got up there and looked at the leaves, and it was a japonica camellia that was growing over the top of a two-story house. I might also say, too, Craig, camellias have a lot of other uses. They're very easy, particularly the sasanquas, to form them into an espalier and grow up the side of a wall. I have a customer who has a two-story house, and she has a Minoyuki camellia that is all the way up to the rooftop on a second-story building. It's just absolutely gorgeous whenever it's in bloom. It's more than 30 years old. It's probably at its widest point, 18 feet wide, and then it's like all the way up to the roof of a two-story dwelling completely covers the side of the house. It's just absolutely stunning. You can use them there. You can also use them in large container pots on your porch or patio. Use them there for a couple of years before transplanting them into your garden at some point in time. Is there anything special you need to know when you plant a camellia in the ground? A lot of people make a mistake in planting camellias. Camellias are plants that really, really like dry feet. They do not like to be overly watered at all. 
typically what I do is I mound mine up just a little bit. The dirt is actually at the crown of the plant and no higher. We want to be sure that it is in a location that drains well. They're all sizes of camellias. Tell us about the smaller sizes of camellias. There are camellias that get anywhere from one and a half to two feet tall and wide, three feet or three and a half feet tall and wide. And probably the most utilized of the smaller ones is the Shishi Gashara, which is three, three and a half feet tall and wide. It comes in a brilliant pinkish color and also in a white that's important when you start putting your garden together is look at your space. What size plant do you need at maturity? Because you can get camellias that range from that size all the way up to camellias that will be 8 to 10 feet tall and 6 to 8 feet wide and are extremely showy during bloom time. One of the things, too, that you certainly need to consider, we talked about size at maturity. You can prune a camellia very easily to keep it to the size that you are looking for. Typically, want to prune the camellia within 30 days of bloom time. And why is that important? That way, you will not be cutting off your bud sets for the next year. Camellias are really pretty easy to maintain. They like to be fertilized in the spring, and then they like a half fertilization in the fall. What you need to do when you fertilize your camellias is you need to pull back your mulch or your pine straw, whatever your ground cover happens to be, and it needs to be pulled back to the drip line. The drip line is, as you know, Craig, is the outer edges of the plant itself. That's where your most fibrous roots are that will uh, take the nutrients from the fertilizer to the camellia itself. What type of fertilizer do you like using? The actual preference that I have on fertilizer uh, for a camellia is Hollytone. That's H-O-L-L-Y, capital T-O-N-E. Hollytone is manufactured by a U.S. company by the name of Espoma, which is located in Pennsylvania. And Espoma is a really, really interesting company in that all they do is produce different types of organic fertilizers. If you look at their company, the pictures of the site where their company is located in Pennsylvania, all of their buildings are covered with solar panels. They actually sell energy that they don't use in their business back. They talk the talk, walk the walk in terms of naturalization. They have a wonderful fertilizer that works well not only for the camellias, but Hollytone is a great fertilizer for azaleas and gardenias as well. I might mention, too, that Espoma has a fertilizer that I use whenever I plant anything. That is called Biotone. That's capital B-I-O, capital T-O-N-E. And you use Biotone one time and one time only, and that's when you plant a new material. I use it if I'm putting in a 4-inch pansy or if I'm putting in a 30-gallon crepe myrtle. The reason for the use of that fertilizer is because it contains mycorrhizae, which attach to the root system of plant material and actually provide additional entrances for nutrients. You get a stronger root system with your material whenever you use biotone in its planting. Camellias have had a lot of hybridization through the years. What is the range of a camellia? How far north is it cold hardy and how far south is it heat tolerant? 
You're going to see the most vibrant camellias from probably uh, the Virginia area all the way down through the south and into middle Florida. They don't do particularly well beyond that. Are they still trying to push it north further into more cold-hardy, or is there a limit? The japonicas are the most cold-hardy of the camellias that you're going to find in your normal garden centers because they do tolerate more cold than some of the Sasanquas. And in particular, there is a species of camellia called a reticulata, and the retics are not very cold-tolerant at all. In fact, if we have really, really cold weather here in the Savannah area, some of the reticulatas will get damaged. You're in Savannah, Georgia on the coast right now, but also have a history in the Piedmont area, in the northern Georgia area. What are the differences in planting and taking care of camellias in those two regions? Oh, gracious, there's a lot of difference. We could plant camellias in more sun in the Atlanta area than we can down here in the Savannah area. I think it has a lot to do with not only our heat, but also the humidity that we have down here on the coast. It affects the camellias a little more, so we have to be a little more careful about where we plant. I actually had some camellias in the Atlanta area when we were living there that took quite a bit more sun up there than I could ever plant them in down here in Savannah. What about soils? The soil, they like slightly acidic soil. That's why in the Piedmont section, you've got to be a little more careful in the way that you plant the camellia and another reason for raising it up. We have so much clay up in the Atlanta area that when you dig out the hole, you're actually creating a bowl that will hold water. That's another reason for mounding the camellia up a little bit so that it does drain better whenever you plant it. All right, what about any particular diseases or insects that we need to be concerned about? Camellias do have a few problems, but the nice thing about it is most of those problems are pretty easily taken care of if you go ahead and give them some proper attention. The most prevalent problem that you have with camellias is T-scale. T-scale is handled very easily with horticultural oil. It typically, though, Craig, is going to take two to three applications. What I try to do is if I see that I've got T-scale as a problem, I will do the horticultural oil application and then come back in two to three weeks and do the second one. Then check it again in another two to three weeks to see if we've gotten it under control. With two applications, you'll get it under control, but every now and then you do need a third application. You will see every now and then some bud drop with camellias. Plant itself has just simply produced more buds than it can support and will drop them naturally. The most common occurrence that I see down here with bud drop is where people have overwatered them. Camellias like dry feet. They don't need nearly as much water as other plant material. You can also see bud drop if you go through a drought or if you have all of a sudden a real quick cold snap and freeze, you can see bud drop as well. You're not going to have the plant die on you as a result of bud drop, more just a one-time problem that is due to one of the factors that we just discussed can see dieback and canker. If you will prune the canker out, prune below the canker itself and use copper fungicide, you can stop it that way. Your camellia will survive. Tell me what a canker is. 
Canker is more like a virus that you'll see the leaves turn yellow on a camellia. You'll see some wilt on them. You'll see some dying at the tip. And you'll see some gray splotches on the stem. What you want to do is you want to prune below those splotches and use your copper fungicide. On a leaf, I see it where it swells up and it almost looks like a cauliflower. Is that a canker or what is that? That typically is a leaf gall. You'll see that more on the Sasanqua camellias than you do on the Japonicas. All you really need to do is to just simply cut that out and you'll be okay. And I use a little copper fungicide as well just as a protection. I'm going to go buy my first camellia. What would you recommend? Oh, wow. You've got to look, where am I going to utilize it in my garden? How much space do I have? Just to be on the safer side, I would use one of the Japonicas, maybe one like I mentioned earlier, the Royal Velvet, which takes a tremendous amount of sun. So you don't make as many mistakes in terms of placement in the garden if you use one that will take a little more sun. If you'll follow the basic rule of morning sun and afternoon shade, you'll be safe with virtually any of the camellias that you're going to find at your local garden center. One thing, Craig, that I don't think we in the horticulture industry do a good enough job of is if you are pruning, number one, you need to make sure that your pruners, they're sharp. They make a good, clean cut, not bruising any more than you have to. The other thing is the cleaning aspect. How do you clean your loppers and pruners? Do you spray it or dip it or what? One part bleach, nine parts water. Dip it, wipe it off, and then I will sharpen my pruners after I do that. I actually clean my pruners and my loppers every day. I am so afraid of boxwood blight, it's not funny. If I have a subcontractor come on one of my jobs, I make them also clean their pruners and their loppers and such before they actually come on the property. And I think we don't do a good job in that regard because boxwood blight is more dominantly spread by humans than it is any other way. I understand there's a series of camellias being developed for the First Ladies of Georgia. Can you tell us about that? It's a unique series of camellias that a grower down in the Valdosta area has developed. He actually started developing it, I believe, with First Lady Deal when her husband was governor of Georgia. There are nine of the camellias that have been dedicated to nine of the First Ladies of Georgia. What's your go-to resource for researching camellias? There are a number of things that I utilize. Probably the most prevalent thing is going to U.S. Camellia Society's website, which, by the way, is located in Georgia down in Fort Valley. That is the head of the American Camellia Society. Their website is AmericanCamellias.com. Charles, I've noticed when I research plants or reading up on plants, they say that it's salt tolerant. Being in the northern area of Georgia and in the Piedmont, that's just knowledge that I really didn't think was relevant to me. But being on the coast, I expect that's fairly relevant. Could you talk about salt tolerant plants and what people need to be familiar with on that? 
salt tolerance has become a major issue for us on the coast. We've had two major hurricanes here in southeastern Georgia in the last five years, and that was Hurricane Matthew and Hurricane Irma. Matthew was more of a wind damage hurricane. Irma, on the other hand, really was a salt incursion event for us. We have a lot of shallow wells that are utilized to not only irrigate our lawns, but also to irrigate the beds as well. When the salinity was induced into the wells by Irma, it really affected a lot of material. When I go to a new property now, if they are on a well system where they irrigate not only their lawns, but their plant beds, I always do a salinity test to be sure that we have water that is not going to damage the plant material. There are a lot of things that are very, very sensitive to salt, in particular roses, loripedlum, camellias are affected by salt. So we have to be careful about what we plant and where we plant. Is that an on-site test or do you have to send those samples off? Do a soil test as well as a water test. We do those through UGA, through the extension system. They give us quick and very accurate results so that we know what we can plant or what we need to do. Because a lot of times what we need to do is we just simply need to split the irrigation system so that we are running the lawn off of the shallow well. And if we have a lot of delicate plant material, then we are running that off of water from the local water facility. The other thing too, Craig, that you look at when you're planting is where is my salt coming from? Is my salt coming from sea spray? Is it coming from marsh spray? Or is my salt simply coming from my well water? That makes a huge difference because you're actually getting salt spray. You actually have leaf material of the whole plant constantly being exposed to salt. And that burns the plant down. That is correct. Over time, that's infiltrating into the soil and changing the salinity there. It's also why you look at creating barriers when you are exposed to any salt spray, like using wax myrtle, or there is also a plant down here that looks very similar to a wax myrtle called a salt marsh shrub create a barrier which keeps the spray off of the smaller material. When you design a garden, what are your typical goals? What I try to do first, I want to sit and talk with the property owner. I want to know what they're looking for. I want to know what they think is pretty. I want to know what colors they like. Do they plan to be out in their garden? I also want to know what is their level of horticulture experience because that may determine the type of the material that I put in there. If I've got somebody with very limited experience, then I don't want them to have material that requires a lot of pruning or a lot of attention. I really want to spend a lot of time with the property owner to determine what they're looking for. My particular garden, what I like is I want it not only to be interesting, but I happen to like growing various fruits. I have avocado, I have pomegranate, I have tangerine, I have key lime, I have a lemon, I have an orange tree, because those things interest me. I want to be out in my yard. 
All of those factors determine what I particularly want to do with someone's design whenever I put it together. I want it to be the design, not my design whenever we finish it. Do you find most people are looking for year-round color? No, actually, I don't until I bring it up to them and then they say, ah, yes, we certainly want to have color out in our yard. That will keep us out in our yard more often. It's fun to put different things in a customer's yard than just your run-of-the-mill, let's have some color in the spring and a little bit of color in the fall. In the wintertime, we're all inside anyway, so we don't worry about it. I find people are interested in coming out into their yard and looking at things growing or blooming most any time during the year. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden? I would like to see them develop a garden that is more useful to their everyday life. I mentioned the fruit trees, but I also think it's very important to have herbs in your yard as well. There's kind of nothing like taking fresh herbs in and using them in your food preparation. There's also nothing like taking that orange off of that orange tree and squeezing fresh orange juice in the morning. So I'd like to see people actually get out and utilize the material that we end up placing in the yard. Can you tell us a funny garden story? The first funny story about horticulture that I remember is before I really got into it, I was actually in a Pike's Nursery in Atlanta, and I made mention of having planted a particular type of plant to one of the salespeople at Pike's, and she said, oh, that's not a very good place for that particular material. So I asked her where I might plant it, and she told me, and then she looked at me and she said, you know, Charles, a plant never truly reaches its home until it reaches its third hole told her that she was driving me away from horticulture in a hurry if I had to dig three holes to find a home for a plant. Yeah, I don't know about your garden, but mine, I think it's like I've moved my plants around. Oh, good gosh. Three, three times, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she was absolutely correct. What's your earliest garden memory? I am a lawyer by academic training, a banker by profession, and then I owned my own business for a number of years and sold it 17 years ago and retired, or at least I thought I retired. I wanted to build myself a greenhouse so that I could have a lemon tree, a lime tree, and some hibiscus plants because I loved hibiscus. After I retired, I did that. I built the greenhouse, and then I started playing with stacked stone walls, building those, creating garden beds in my yard. That's really kind of my first early memories of when I really got into horticulture. What about as a child? Would you have early memory then? Not a whole lot. The one thing I do remember is my mother's love of geraniums and having them planted in large planters at our front door in North Carolina. She had very full geraniums in large planters every summer. I still have a fondness for using geraniums in large planters when I do designs for people. You have an interesting story about how you decide to get into gardening. You've told us a little about that already. Can you expand on that? Yeah, sure. Um, actually, when I started doing that, I developed a friendship with a lady at Pike's Nursery in Atlanta, Mickey Gasaway. And Mickey is just an absolutely wonderful horticulturist. As she was helping me develop my own garden, she said, you know, Charles, as much as you like plants, you ought to just come work at Pike's part-time during the seasonal employee time and help folks with plants. 
I said, well, I'll give that a try. And I did, really got into it. And so I went through the University of Georgia certification for plant professionals program, got that designation and decided that I also wanted to start working in the design area as well. And they also have a related program, which is the Georgia Certified Landscape Professional Program have both of those designations now. That's where I really got rooted into the horticulture area. How did you transition from the Atlanta area with Pikes into Savannah? That's kind of an interesting story. My bride was a senior liver transplant coordinator for Piedmont Hospital in Atlanta. One of her former directors was actually employed by the University of Minnesota and called her and asked her if she would like to be a transplant coordinator from home. Cindy had done sessions in the Savannah area after I retired. We were down in the Savannah area about six times a year and kind of fell in love with it. When she got the call about being able to do that job from home, we just decided we would move to Savannah and retire to Savannah. But you didn't retire. What's unique about those properties? Their size and then also the passion that the people have for horticulture. I have one customer that I have actually been to Louisiana, to Mississippi, to North Carolina to purchase camellias for them to go in their garden. Each of the properties that I work with have their own uniqueness about them, and that's what I really enjoy is the different customers have different areas that they're interested in. keeps me motivated to learn more, if you will. What's your most valuable garden mistake? Planting the material in an area that overgrew where I had planted it. When I first started gardening, I really put material where I wanted to put it as opposed to where it should have been planted so that it had sufficient room to thrive at maturity. Lowers maintenance when you do it that way and get a healthier plant. That is absolutely correct. You get a much healthier plant, much happier plant if you plant it in an area where it's supposed to be planted, i.e. if it's supposed to be planted in full sun. If you've put it in part sun and part shade, it's not going to bloom as well if you're looking at that type of material. I think that location is probably the biggest mistake that I have made in my gardening. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have plants that interest me, plants that make me happy. You already told us a little bit about your garden and with the different fruit trees. Tell us more about your garden. We've got a koi pond that we inherited that we have an awful lot of fun with. We did have a raccoon who also discovered the koi pond, and we had to get him relocated so that he did not disturb our fish. We have herbs in our garden. We have our fruit trees, an avocado. I have an orange. I have a Meyer lemon. I have a tangerine. I have a pomegranate, and I have a ruby red grapefruit. 
your fresh fruits most of the season. That's correct. And what's interesting is if you really spend time with it, I have one of my customers who has developed a real affinity for the fruit. And we've spent a lot of time developing a little orchard for her here in Savannah. Peach tree in the orchard. We have two pineapple. We have two guavas. We have a mango. We have a cherry tree. And it's interesting. We have a cherry tree. It's called a Brazos cherry. Most of the of your cherry trees you think about are in Michigan or up in the northern tier of states because they have to have a lot of cold time. This is one particular variety of cherry that does not require any chill time. It's important. We have developed a lot of different fruits now that we're able to grow in areas that we have not been able to grow in heretofore. For instance, the apple trees. There are some apples now that don't require a whole lot of cold time. You just have to be careful with any of the fruits to be sure that you do the proper research to know that you can grow a particular fruit in your particular area. You'll remember, Craig, I said one of the things that interested me was I'd always wanted a lemon tree and a lime tree. Well, I couldn't have the lemon tree and the lime tree in the Atlanta area until I built the greenhouse and put two big doors on the greenhouse so that I could put them in big pots and winter them over in the greenhouse and then bring them out in the spring. You have to do a little bit of research, be a little bit creative, and be prepared to take a little bit of risk. Gardening is risky. It is. What are your future plans for your garden? Quite frankly, I'm pretty close to out of space. I'm going to do some rearranging because most of our lots down here in Savannah are pretty small. That's another thing, too. When you choose material, you've got to choose material that works in your lot size. For instance, you don't want to choose a Natchez crepe myrtle if you have a small, narrow lot because the Natchez crepe myrtle, which is your big, white, traditional crepe myrtle, can get quite large and therefore, A, it it shades your yard so that affects other plant material that you may put in there, or B, it's just too big for the yard itself. Whenever I choose my fruit trees, I do ornamentals that are more on the dwarfish side so that I can get more of them in my yard. I also do the same thing with the plant material. With my camellias that I have, I choose camellias that don't get quite as large at maturity so that I can have more of them. If I'm using an Encore Azalea, I may choose to use an Encore Azalea that only gets three by three so that I can get more of them in, whereas some of the other Encore Azaleas may get four and a half to five feet tall and wide and take up too much space. I think that in any of the yards, you just have to look at the material that you want to use and what is going to be its size at maturity and choose accordingly. What is your favorite plant? Wow, my favorite plant, I guess really and truly, I do more work with camellias than anything else. So I would say that I do really enjoy the different varieties of camellias. And quite frankly, Craig, I also really enjoy my citrus as well. That has been a fun thing that I have developed since I have been in the Savannah area is finding, for instance, an avocado that is cold hardy enough that we could plant in our yard. 
We actually had our first large production of avocados just this year because your typical avocado trees take three to five years for them to produce a lot of fruit. That has been a fun thing as well. This has been episode 83, Where Do Camellias Grow Best? with Charles Daniel. And as a remix of episode 29 on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Charles. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.